0: Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Radiotherapy's Facebook page.
1: Now, today on the show, we are concentrating on my second favourite organ. (laughs) This particular (laughs) mass of tissue is responsible for so many bodily functions, including detoxifying nasty chemicals. It also synthesizes the proteins that keep you healthy and the bibs and bobs that make your blood clot, as well as a host of other things. It lives under your ribs, weighs about one and a half kilos, and in Greek is called hepatos, it is the liver. That's right, the liver. Dr. James Halliday just happens to be a liver specialist, and he's popped in today to talk with us about this wonderful organ. He spent 15 years in healthcare, initially as a physiotherapist. Woohoo! I love physiotherapists. Then as a gastroenterologist and and because he just can't stop studying. He's doing a PhD. I mean, really, James, take a breath. Wow. So smart, these young people. Dr. Halliday will be chatting with us about his study, which focuses on hepatitis C and E health. Professor Robert Jones AM is, like, is like Dr. Halliday, somewhat of a high achiever. Now, born in New Zealand, he trained as a surgeon, initially in Christchurch, then Sydney Cambridge and Pittsburgh Moving to Melbourne in the late 80s Bob started the Victorian Liver Transplant Program Which he currently heads Based at the Children's and Austin Hospitals The program has done over 1,000 That's 1,000 liver transplants And since 2010 has begun intestinal and multi-organ transplants Now there's so much to talk about with Bob That it deserves its own podcast series But today we'll, we'll just stick with liver transplantation What's it like living with a transplanted liver? What accommodations do you have to make to your lifestyle? What can you do now that a failing liver stopped you from doing? Um, These are all really important questions. And Bella is a recipient of a donor liver, and she has very, very kindly given up her Sunday morning to have a chat with us about life with her new liver. Now, if that ain't enough medicine for one morning, we will be joined by Dr. G Spot, psychologist and bon vivant, as well as Nurse EpiPen, who was awarded the most likable healthcare practitioner in Victoria at the recent Radiotherapy Award ceremony two minutes before the start of the show. So stick with me, Dr. Malpractice, for the next hour of medicine right here on Radiotherapy.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Have you
1: ever had those moments where your brain just completely loses it? Where you want to say something that's on the tip of your tongue, where you have this memory and you go, ah! I can't remember. I
2: think I'm having it now. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I think it's it's almost uh, like a daily occurrence. How about you guys?
3: Yeah, yeah definitely. I... I, and spelling. Sometimes I can't. I go, that's an easy word, but I can't spell it. And I'm thinking, oh, hang mm, on a second. Mm. Don't lose your confidence. It'll come.
1: <laughs> and do you have it like, I was at a party yesterday and there was somebody who I've seen at least 450 times in my life and I totally <laughs> forgot their name.
3: Oh, names. Yeah, I think one of my – my dad was really good at that and he always used to say, grab their hand yeah. and say it back to them and then say it to yourself uh-huh. and then it's you've got more chances of remembering it.
1: Yeah, but, I, but I've seen uh-huh. this person 450
3: <laughs> times. Well, And I used to have a trick. I used to say, oh, hi, matey. Yeah, yeah. Or, hey, how are you going, mate?
1: Or you wait for somebody else to come up and you say, introduce yourself. <laughs> and the person says, well, he's married to yeah. <laughs> that person. Is that yeah. brain
2: fog? Is that a is segue bra- oh, Is, that, is think, that brain fog? I think that these are all good examples of brain fog. And I think now that we're hitting the festive season, yeah. we might be experiencing a bit more brain fog yep. than even earlier in the year. And I've been reading this really cool article uh, published in NeuroImage by Bolter uh, et al. And it's all about the effect of inflammation on b- brain fog. Oh. I think people wouldn't necessarily associate inflammation with... Or having um, having had an infection with brain fog. What? Where's what? the infection? So what they did, well, uh-huh. I think what they what they well the premise of this study was that sometimes when people are recovering from an infection, a virus, they experience brain fog. They, they just feel mentally sluggish.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like yeah, after a cold or... or exactly.
2: You've if, if you've had a very high temperature,
3: you yeah, can yeah. lose mm. vision, a little bit weird vision, and you can feel very out of spacey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. the temperature is so high, mm. so I, I think that fits. Mm. You're hitting all the right notes there, EpiPen. So with this study, they, um, they had 20 uh, young male volunteers who were healthy and they received the Salmonella typhoid vaccine that causes temporary inflammation but doesn't have very many other side effects. So, you know, lucky them getting the, the, the typhoid vaccine. And um, they looked at a couple of different aspects of their, their attention. Um, so one of the processes was alerting, which involves reaching and maintaining an alert state. They also looked at orienting, which involves uh, selecting and prioritising useful sensory information. And the third thing they looked at was executive control, which is, um, I suppose, how we make decisions. And it's, um, yeah, it's sort of that higher level thinking. Mm. And what they found was that the guys who had the typhoid vaccine, their ability to um, orient to, or I should say, uh, their alertness mm. was impacted. So their executive control and their orienting was fine it was really just their ability to stay alert and that's and what you were talking about there Penny about even their um their eyesight being affected
1: ah (laughs) yes that makes sense so you can't so is it your ability to 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 stay concentrating on something
2: exactly yeah so they couldn't they basically couldn't get up the um cognitive ability to stay alert
1: and is it did they speculate what is this one of those weirdo chemicals in your blood that gets released like interleukin interferon yeah, neuro or something that? they right were it?
2: looking at interleukin 6 levels to monitor inflammation and that that's how they knew that the vaccine had worked
1: so hand on my heart this is so reassuring to me for because for about the last 10 years I was when I teach medical students I say you know when you have a physical illness it can affect you psychologically and they say well what's the biochemical basis and i say oh interleukin and they say which one and i say,
2: oh, six so, <laughs> so, so, so. that's i agree Sorry. when in doubt say six yeah <laughs> so it really is interleukin six it is yeah and i, I think <laughs> if anyone's keen they should definitely check out this paper it's a really good one
1: what's the name of the paper
2: the paper is called selective effects of acute low grade inflammation on human visual attention
1: just tell me how did you come across this is this what you do in your daily reading you could have
2: it really is along with you know keeping up with the bachelorette i do like to read um some more i suppose cerebral articles but i mean my top priority is reality tv so yeah
3: how many of them do you watch
2: that's do you know epipen i feel like i've cut back in recent years um but i still indulge in it way too much you know, there are, there are,
1: re- no, there are really, really smart people who <laughs> like these kind of programs, reality TV know. programs.
3: I'm shocked. I mean- my, if my husband saw me watching it, he, he'd just he'd raise his eyes and walk okay, out of the room. I kind of
1: get it. I mean it doesn't appeal to me,
3: but I kind of get because you
1: just want to switch off. Yes you just, your brain's been busy the whole day and you just want to like I'm turn not sure off.
2: about mine, but no, um, yeah, sure yeah, yeah so sure. I've been in a bit of a brain fog and then I just transition really nicely mm. into the Bachelorette.
1: Now <laughs> speaking of busy brains coming up, we'll be speaking with Professor Bob. A oh, Robert Jones. No, Prefer- Bob. Bob? He's, he's Bob. Professor yeah. Bob Jones. So have a listen to this and we will be back in a
3: minute.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
3: I have the great privilege in starting the conversation with um, Professor Bob Jones. So we go back a long time. In fact, I worked in the hepatitis unit, liver unit at the Alfred Hospital. And we were sending patients when Bob started doing the operations for liver transplant, we were sending them over to the Austin. And now I have the great privilege of starting a conversation with him. So Bob, how did you get into surgery, let alone liver transplant? Do you want to just fill us in with your fantastic well
0: I was always very handy with my hands and uh, when I came to do medicine I decided that surgery was clearly the way to go because medicine has lots and lots of thinking and standing around whereas surgery you actually could do something very
3: true and surgery
0: is surgery just a a very uh, immediate you you do something you see the results so it's for those people who like to see something very practical yeah. very early
3: on yeah fantastic and i'm very well aware that doing liver transplants is much harder than a heart transplant would you agree
0: oh i'm not sure the heart transplanters would agree
3: No, oh, um, I've christian <laughs> barnard does agree
0: <laughs> i think we all think what we do is rather special and more difficult than the others uh the technical parts of it i think probably overlap but the, the, the challenging parts of the biology and understanding that and looking after patients before selection and looking after them afterwards. And the physicians know that they're the most important people.
3: Because <laughs> they've got the long-term relationship.
0: They're the with, ones that have to do all the hard work.
3: Yeah. So what's it like? What, what, what are you faced with when you open up people's tummies and there's cirrhosis and there's biliary treasure and there's...
0: I think surgeons enjoy the challenge, the physical challenge, and you go in as prepared as you can be, but you don't actually know until you actually open the tummy and see what's in there. And you have to have lots of things in your armamentarium to cope. You often get surprised and you find things that you didn't expect and you need a plan to cope with those. And that's the challenging part of the the technical aspects of surgery.
3: Mm -hmm. And... uh um, Mal was saying that you've done a 1,000 transplants We've now? Done
0: well, well, more than a 1,000. And uh, uh, it's demanding and it's busy. It's out of hours. It's seven days a week. And it's very hard to plan because you never know when this is going to happen. And it's all very dependent on organ donation. And we just have to be prepared when there is an organ donor available. Bob, how long does it take... To do the surgery, well, it varies, but the, it's we call it day surgery. You start one day and finish the next. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, but in, invariably, from the time you get a donor call to where maybe finishing the transplant, it's it's often at about twenty-four hours. The surgery itself is, if you're lucky, eight hours. It often runs ten or twelve hours. as a sort of routine.
1: And are you there the whole time for that eight hours? Well, the,
0: the main surgeon will be there the whole time, and uh, occasionally we'll switch over if depending on who's available. Yeah. But just having the number of people available to be around available around the clock, mm. uh, it it just depends who's around. From a, a technical
1: plumbing point of view, I mean the liver occupies such a large space in the abdomen and there's lots of connections it has. How, how, physically, how do you how do you actually visualise all those things? I mean, what do you do to actually see the the, the portal vein and the hepatic artery? And you know, how do you do all that stuff?
0: Well, that, you're right. Now, a lot of it is just the working out the plumbing in three dimensional space. So you've done a lot of planning beforehand. We know a lot about the donor. And we know a lot about the right. recipient. So you've thought about this beforehand, and you have matched the donor and recipient. Anatomically, just in size, for example. Trying to squeeze a great big liver into a tiny space just doesn't work or causes lots of problems. So we've done a lot of prep work and then a lot of it is just dealing with that. Things don't line up, so you have to have angle joints to kind of get round corners. uh,
3: So you were mentioning um, squishing a liver into a small body, but are you still doing fragments of livers, so partial um, liver? Yes,
0: Epi. Look, the only way that children will have a transplant as if they can have part of an adult donor. So children, an, a normal 70-kilogram adult donor, you can take a tiny corner of that liver and put it into a 7-kilo one-year-old child, and that's really the only way that that child will have an opportunity of having a transplant. And does that, that liver grow with the child? Or does it stay the same size throughout the child's no, life? No, it's extraordinary. Well, it does. The liver's just got this extraordinary mm. ability. If you put too big a liver into a smaller recipient it'll shrink a little bit if it's not big enough it'll grow a little bit and then a one year old child with part of that adult liver can have that liver 20 years later and it'll have expanded up to being a normal sized liver that is absolutely fascinating yeah. it won't be the same shape as a normal liver because yeah. it'll just be the original shape bigger but no one would ever
1: know. I mean, unless you did a CAT scan, you mean, you no one's going to know what your liver looks like.
0: It, well, that's exactly right. In yeah. fact, sometimes people, they do have a CAT scan, so it's a little surprising. That's yeah. very unusual looking at old <laughs> liver.
1: Um, and what is it about that... I mean, heart trans- it started with heart transplants and there were kidney transplants, or was it the other way around?
0: It was Essentially, kidneys were Ki- the first yeah. of the block.
1: What took so long for livers to be transplanted?
0: Well, actually it's a really great story, Mel, because yeah. one of the pioneering surgeons, Tom Starzl in the United States, really sorted out how to do kidney transplants in the mid-60s. He sorted out how to do it for everybody, mm. and simultaneously he was doing liver transplants. So liver transplantation started pretty much the same time as kidney transplants. It's extraordinary, really. And it's so extraordinary, of course, that For the first decade, most of the patients who received a liver transplant died before...
3: That was in Pittsburgh, wasn't it?
0: That was all in Denver and Pittsburgh.
3: Pittsburgh, mm. and I've heard a story that um, some people with alcoholic liver disease, so long as they're not drinking a bottle of scotch on the way to the hospital for their transplant, they can still have a transplant. So that's <laughs> a bit of a joke. But what, what's the story with alcoholic liver disease and? Well, pit?
0: very on, only about ten or twelve percent of our patients who get transplanted have a history of significant alcohol, and there are a group of people who have drunk, you know, who, who have drunk a fair bit and who are very sensitive. to alcohol Mm -hmm. who end up with liver disease Um, but these are very selected and we have to be very confident that they're not going to continue drinking afterwards
1: what uh, what is the breakdown of the types of uh, illnesses and diseases that affect the liver that you would end up transplanting
0: well they're different for adults and for children Mm -hmm. and for children for example half of them are born with biliary atresia, which is just the little tiny bile ducts in the liver don't develop these are otherwise completely normal Children, but their liver doesn't have the little drainage pipes mm. in it. And the other group of children are those with sort of unusual and weird metabolic mm. conditions, enzyme deficiencies. Mm. And liver transplantation can cure the liver disease, but also cure the underlying enzyme deficiency. Well, and this, well, really? Mm, so, for example, there's some children born who can't store sugar, mm. and they require to have sugar given to them continually; otherwise, they will get brain damage. Mm-hmm and the liver transplant will fix that instantly so they'll have a new liver and immediately not require constant sugar feeding.
2: I I have such a new appreciation for my liver after this um, conversation. (laughs) I just feel like going, woo liver. (laughs) I wanted to ask Bob, I suppose in um, other types of surgery we talk about um, sort of being a good candidate for, for surgery. What do you look for in someone who's seeking a liver transplantation?
0: Well, Dr. G, we we put a lot of effort into the recipients. The Mm. the most important thing is they really have to understand what they're embarking on, Mm. and it is a huge issue. There's absolutely no doubt that the best liver is your own liver. But as an alternative, uh, and a transplant's not a bad way to go, but for most of the patients who are going to receive a liver, the the alternative is that they'll die without this. Mm. So it becomes a fairly binary decision most patients so one of them is just understanding what's going to happen and understanding the risks involved and then afterwards the post-op care because you you have got a you're sort of swapping one illness for the next you're going from your liver disease illness to liver transplant illness and it does have a lot of implications after the transplant Mm.
1: what i mean what sort of things what are you talking about the the immediate well i guess you are the immediate post-op care where you'd probably be in intensive care for a while and then there's the the rehab Mm -hmm. and physio and all those things afterwards i mean we'll be speaking with bella but what's that like from the doctor's point of view what sort of things do you do and what do you look for? well
0: that's exactly right the initial phase is just getting over that operation (coughs) and surviving it Mm -hmm. and once you're through that you're then looking at the long-term maintenance and you're going to be taking drugs and medications and need checkups and as time goes by that does get easier But it does require you to take part in this process. Mm. And we generally tell our patients that you'll be on these drugs for the rest of your life. Mm. And interestingly, a lot of the complications after the transplant are related to side effects of the drugs. So the drugs can give you diabetes or the drugs can cause high blood pressure and then we've got to treat those things. So there are a lot of downsides at the moment to the long-term outcome of transplantation.
1: I know that there have been uh, some quite... um Stunning uh, discoveries in terms of immunotherapy. Has that made a difference to liver transplant, uh, transplant transplantation in the last ten years?
0: We haven't had any revolutionary changes, no. Mel, in the last ten years. We've we've got much better ref, much better refinement uh. in terms of treating patients rather than giving everyone identical therapy. Yeah. And I think the future for us at the moment is going to be sort of tailoring therapy to the individual patient. So this patient might only require a little bit of immunosuppression and we need to work out how to do that mm. rather than giving everybody the same dose regardless mm. and we're sort of heading along that direction mm.
3: um and what's the story of the liver once it's left a person it is uh, can you accept people from can livers from cairns or is it better to have a local one in victoria what's wh- where have you expanded out to receiving um organs now
0: well it- it totally depends on the storage time of the liver, and our current storage mechanism is is incredibly complex. We get an esky from Coles, and we put it in esky on ice, and those livers can last six to eight hours quite comfortably. So it has to be able to be retrieved from the donor and implanted into the recipient in about six to eight hours. That's the sort of the ideal time. Two hours would be better, but that's going to be impractical and impossible. And the the longer this liver, the donor liver, sits. In ice, the the more rapidly it deteriorates Mm. and Mm. doesn't function so well. So that
1: means it would be a locally sourced donor then? Well, we,
0: we go all over Australia and New Zealand. So we can retrieve from Darwin or Perth or Auckland... So, t- so tell us in
1: terms of logistics how that works. Like you get the call that um, there is a donor liver available. Just take us through what happens next.
0: Well, we have a system of coordination and we have our donor coordinators who are the people in, on the ground in the hospital who are sorting out what's happening with the donor. And we have our recipient coordinators. And our two sets of coordinators tie all this together mm. and make sure that the timing is maximised so mm. that... The donor operation is started. We've got an aeroplane available. Time is minimised. The recipient started, so when that liver arrives, the recipient's ready to go.
1: So, hang on, just let me interrupt for a second. So, you get the call. There's, a, um, and the donor operation starts. Now, are you? Do you fly? Do you go to the donor operation? Or are you there with the recipient? We staff?
0: frequently will go if, if there's no one else locally to do it. Right. We'll send a team, and they will start the donor, and when they're happy, we'll start the recipient before the donor's even you know, halfway completed.
1: So you're halfway retrieving the liver from the donor and the recipient is in theatre being prepped to receive the exactly.
0: liver. Exactly, And That's, we're pretty wow. keen to get that right because we don't want to start the recipient and then find out we're going to have to stop.
1: Wow. Okay. So then you you, you, t- you, you retrieve the liver, you fly back if you're uh, interstate or wherever.
0: Um it, it,
1: Simple question, but how do you get from the airport to the hospital? Do you have a, like a police
0: escort to, we, to go Well, past? we we used to use the police yeah. quite routinely, but we all decided that was probably a little bit dangerous because the police drive very fast <laughs> through the city. There'll be more donors. Uh, teams. True. And so, we, and we've decided it's probably the extra twenty thirty minutes. Is, I
2: was just imagining the this. like the liver jolting around in the esky as a result <laughs> yeah. of this fast driving. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so uh, it it has to be coordinated you know, right. to make it uh, to minimise that time, and we usually we've got that down to a pretty fine art. It doesn't right. always work, yeah. and it's nice to build in an hour or two of extra time, so that if something does happen, that we have got that extra time up our sleeve, and that new liver is not going to be wasted.
1: Yeah, yeah. So then you get to the hospital with the liver. You would then go in and get scrubbed. The liver would then. What
0: happens to the liver? Is it
1: checked? Is it blood-typed or across the... Oh, all that's all been
0: done beforehand. All that has to be done well and truly before. Matched, typed, all those decisions Mm. made before the committed and before Mm. you start the recipient. Mm. But when the liver does arrive back at the hospital, there's about an hour's worth of work just making sure, tidying it up, all the loose ends and checking the pipes and plumbing Mm. and Sometimes having to attach little bits of extra tubing to it so that it can be sewn into the recipient. And that's happening in the same theatre now as the recipient, where the donor surgeon and the recipient surgeon are working sort of side by side.
1: And you would have, obviously, assistants working with you, I would assume, surgeons? Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
0: So there'll be at least two surgeons doing the donor and two surgeons doing the recipient and often a third. So there'll be probably up to five surgeons working in the one theatre simultaneously at that time.
3: Would you like to just tell us the last one that you've done? How how long ago last liver transplant?
0: Well, we've just had a little run of recipients, and in the last month we did about fifteen, I think, from memory. And uh, one of the most recent is a couple with a small batch of children, uh, young children who uh, were waiting, sort of semi urgently, on the list. Um, sometimes those children can be desperately sick and require transplantation within. week or two of coming to hospital.
3: Do you do them at the children's or do you do them at the hospital? And the children are all
0: done at the children's hospital. So anything under about 18, 16, 18, we do at the children's hospital.
3: And you go to the, and join the paediatric surgeons at the children's? We
0: do. So we've got a team that share resources. We do about a dozen, 15 children a year. And so that team overlaps with the adult team. And how many would you do a year in total of transplants? Uh, Last Year academic, we did one hundred and seven transplants in Victoria. So about one every sort of two or three days. It's yeah. it, correct, and we cover Tasmania and do the paediatric transplants for South Australia, who the children come to Victoria.
1: Yeah, you know, just just as a, it's, it's interesting to me how these services get started because it would have been a very novel thing when you obviously when you started it. Um, how did you sell it to the hospital? How did you say, look, I want to set up a liver transplantation service?
0: Well, it was very controversial at the time. Yeah. In fact, there was a lot of opposition to transplantation in victoria and a lot of people thought that doing this in children was experimental and uh, you know akin to torturing children Mm -hmm. so there was a tremendous amount this is within the medical community so there was a lot of controversy about it and uh, it was really the families that drove it and interestingly a couple of physicians who had to look after these children and had to watch these children getting sicker and sicker who drove the decision to proceed and try transplantation here in victoria
1: and did the hospital say, um, look, uh, you can just be part of our normal surgical service, or did you get like a, a, a siloed amount of uh,
0: resources to do that? Well, it was not, nothing much in medicines, very well planned. It was really a few <laughs> committed and yeah. enthusiastic surgeons and physicians who supported it, along with a few key administrators who took the risk. And it was a big risk yeah. because the, the downside was really just yeah. getting into trouble and patients not surviving. So, but it was really driven by patients who had no other alternative. Yeah and families demanding something being done. Do
1: you have a champion like a, 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 somebody in the media or somebody that uh, really sort of flies the flag for, for liver transplantation like we do for uh, certain uh, cancers and things like that?
0: Well, we it's interesting. Look, I, we've got an enormous donation service. Oh, okay. And probably the man that probably drove the latest, is Kevin Rudd, so, uh, oh, really? Prime Minister Kevin, had had a homographed valve replacement. So he had actually a type of organ yeah. transplant for his heart valve and he and his government committed a huge sum of money to centrally organizing donation across australia and that really has been a driving force in uh-huh. a dramatic modernization prior to that transplantation was really mm. a sort of cottage activity over in the corner <laughs> where nobody really wanted much to do with it and it didn't fit into mainstream medicine but mm. that commitment from Kevin Rudd and his government which has continued to this day Uh has really brought transplantation into the mainstream and has probably been the big change.
3: I can remember uh, um, accompanying a young man from the Alfred to Brisbane for a liver transplant because it wasn't available in Melbourne Mm -hmm. and he's done extremely well. He's gone on to have children, he's uh, survived really well and he's I can just remember it being such a success story, and those good news stories, especially families and having mm. children on treatment, is very reassuring and I'm sure you know you've got some lovely stories of families enjoying the lives of their children and um, mm. having babies and mm. penny
0: you're right it's still an extraordinary I think what just a, a, one of my favorite stories a little while ago one of our younger uh, female patients had come into the clinic with a photograph of herself at a deb ball and she was talking to the nursing staff with her mum saying, look at the dress, and they made the dress and everyone was talking about it. And I looked at somebody and said, what's really impressive about that photograph or what's special about it? And they kind of say, oh, the dress. And I said, no, that (laughs) that young woman is a baby. She would not be here. She wouldn't have been in the picture at all. And and that's the extraordinary thing. that This is life-saving. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find
4: out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
1: Dr. James Haraday, you are a man of many talents. Um, You started off as a physiotherapist, then decided to become a doctor, and now you're a hepatologist. Correct. Just how did that happen? Just tell, to give me the, the developmental trajectory of how someone goes, yeah, I'm a physiotherapist today, ah, next day I'm a hepatologist.
4: Well, I didn't plan on ending up in this spot. It was something that happened naturally, and uh, as has happened with a lot of physiotherapists now. I think you finish university, work for a couple of years, decide, hey, this is great, I really love what I'm doing and I just want to keep on learning more and it just mm. happened organically from there.
1: Mm. Yeah. So what does a hepatologist actually do?
4: So we look after all diseases of the liver, mm-hmm. essentially. And and all gastroenterologists, so people would have heard of gastroenterology, where we look after the gut, but all of us train in liver disease as well as part of that specialty. And it's really a subspecialty um, along with gastroenterology. Mm. So anything to do with the liver, we love managing.
1: What just, and I'm really interested, what, I mean, I, I've got this theory that in, in medicine in particular with specialties you kind of often fall into it you don't you're not born with the desire to become i don't know an orthopedic surgeon or or maybe you are or a hepatologist or cardiologist maybe you are but it's kind of like you meet a group of people you like the work you like the patients and you kind of keep going with that trajectory for the rest of your life so what was it about liver uh patients or the or the actual kind of specialty that, that, that that draws you to it
4: um it's a good question uh the liver is the greatest organ in the body. It's pretty, pretty straightforward, oh, isn't oh, it? It's oh, not oh.
3: So. Oh, to rob
1: F- second. F- Fighting words. Yeah, <laughs> the
4: brain. Who needs a brain? <laughs> um, so, it, look, you deal with really interesting patients, yeah. and and everything from hepatitis to you know alcohol related liver problems, um, and you really get to know patients well and, and manage them over a long period of time. But it's just a wonderful organ. Mm.
3: So we were just talking a few minutes ago about hepatitis C. That, do you mm. want to? Uh, Give us the update on that.
4: It's really one of the most amazing medical success stories ever. I mean, can you think of any other... There's no other chronic virus that we can actually cure reliably, which we can do. And if you think about it, this, this, this virus was only discovered in 1988. So in 30 years, we've gone from discovering hepatitis C to having a cure in 98% of people with pretty much zero side effects. It's, it's really incredible.
1: How did that happen? Uh, yeah, what, what, what was behind that that made it work so well?
4: Part of it's the, the virus itself, mm. lent itself to that. Mm. Um, part of it was a need. I mean, it's the major mm. cause of liver transplantation and liver cancer. Which is, is it really? It is indeed. And, mm. and, and liver cancer is fast rising in Australia. Um, yeah. It's the number six cause of actual cancer-related deaths. And, uh, and having you know, that, that push has led mm. to development rapidly of, mm. of, of such a great cure as well mm. and look if you go back even further yeah. i mean back in the 60s when anyone had a blood transfusion one in three people would get jaundice and most of the time that was from hepatitis c
1: dinkum really so one in three people got hepatitis c in the ni- in the
4: 1960s either hepatitis b or c from from blood transfusion really right.
3: So, so and now, if you're getting a blood transfusion, it's very heavily screened yeah, yeah. for some of these viruses, so you don't get that blood that's infected with the Hep C. Right with the there, Hep C, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. So, when Penny, when EpiPen and I were, um, when we first met, at. Uh, at a big hospital next to a park with a helipad, we we were doing a hepatitis clinic, and uh, there was Hep C wasn't around. It was non A non B. That's where we were up to.
3: And interferon, the treatment with interferon, and how that mucked up people. Yeah, it's yeah. The side effects, the long term, three times a week, and it was awful. An awful drug. Um, and so this is revolutionary. Uh, it's in our lifetime, and it's so exciting what's happened with Hep C.
4: Can you imagine just taking, you know, one to three tablets a day for eight to 12 weeks and it's gone? It's, that, that's as easy as it is now. Really?
1: It so is. what's the name of the, or the generic name of the treatment that one uses?
4: So there's a whole bunch of different treatments that right. we use now and they've got really long and uh, very difficult to pronounce names. Okay. Like I won't put you on the spot. I can, <laughs> <I> can, like, sofospivir <laughs> and, and oh God, oh, God. El- el- it's a bit sexy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Who names these? Yeah. Phil Pattersby, right? And what do they actually? How do they work? Do they? What do they do? The virus.
4: So they all work on different aspects of the virus and yeah. viral replication. So a lot of them stop the virus from replicating and huh. allow your body to kill it. That's one way. And we always use more than one of these drugs because we need to attack it from two different sides to be able to do this as well. But we find that the levels of the virus in the blood might go from the millions to nothing in two weeks on these medications. That is just
1: incredible. I mean, yeah, it is one of those wonderful medical success stories. So that's if you get it early, but if people have had hep C for a number of years it can lead to chronic complications what sort of things happen
4: so over a long period of time not everyone about one in five people with hepatitis C uh, can develop scarring of the liver so just chronic inflammation it causes damage scarring and over time when that gets really bad we call that cirrhosis of the liver Mm -hmm. and that's when people can develop liver cancers as well as a result and, Mm. and you know can get very very sick
3: So, um, bringing Bob in on this one, um, I can remember that some patients did have transplants when they had hep C and cirrhosis, and what would have happened to the new liver that they got? Did that get infected, and then you've been able to treat them?
0: Epi, it was was exactly that. Within hours of having a brand new shiny liver, the virus would be back in that liver, and within 24 hours or so, sometimes astronomical levels of viral replication in your brand new shiny liver. Interestingly, most of those patients did quite well in the sort of short to medium term, but there were occasional patients in whom that virus came back and within months had wiped out their new liver. Mm.
1: Well, did that also have something to do with the, um, immunosuppression? Uh, the, yeah, the immunosuppression that the patients are getting as well?
4: We think so, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah, 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 yeah. So obviously, James, you and Bob communicate.
4: Occasionally. Yeah. Yep. So, well, I don't want to
1: put too much pressure on the relationship. I assume you're both in hepatology. Um, would it be the sorts of patients who have had long-term untreated hepatitis C that you would refer to Bob for the transplant That's exactly program? right.
4: So when they reach a certain level, mm-hmm. when they have liver cirrhosis and getting very, very sick from that, and there's nowhere to go. I mean, these days, now we treat hepatitis C so early, we hope mm-hmm. this will never happen. Mm-hmm. We're already seeing a, a drop in the amount of patients we're referring for transplant, mm-hmm. even in three years of these new medications. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, some patients get to the stage where they're too sick, and, and we would send them to Bob yeah. for, for transplant. Yeah.
1: How would somebody know if they've got hepatitis C? I mean, what sort of things might they experience?
4: They wouldn't, and that's the that's the problem. Until they get sick, with the liver being so damaged, most people don't know they have it. And unfortunately, years ago, when we just discovered this virus, a lot of people were told, "Oh, you don't have to worry about it, or it's not going to kill you, or yeah. you know," and, and we're told just to forget about it. So yeah. we're trying to find all these patients now to actually treat and cure.
1: Now, I know you're doing work with general practitioners. Is that, that That's, that's right. right. That's your PhD. Yeah. What, is, what is your actual PhD topic?
4: Uh, so we're looking at testing essentially an online model of care. I mean, if you think about it, people with chronic diseases at the moment, we're accruing an enormous amount of people with chronic diseases. Yeah. And, you know, they get referred to specialists and they might sit there waiting for three months for an appointment and then we send them... Say, see them for 10 minutes and say, that's great, I'll see you in another three months. But what happens <laughs> yeah. in that three months? You know? yeah. And how can we empower the local doctor to help manage things yeah. as well? So that's really episodic care. What we want to get to is continuous care. Yeah. where With our modern technologies, we should all be able to communicate constantly. Yeah. So if I'm getting sick, I should be able to tell my specialist, hey, I'm getting sick, yeah. I want to see you again. Yeah. Or we'll get some advice very quickly. So we're testing an online model where everyone can connect, in, including patients, gp specialists see their treatment plan uh and also communicate electronically and with these new treatments in hepatitis c and amazing things happen it used to be that hospitals would treat all these patients but now any doctor can mm. and in fact we need that to get the treatment out to everyone uh, so we're trying this online model to help empower gps and, and connect everyone together in care
1: uh, there are there other models that you've kind of looked at for, say, help, uh, say, with um, heart failure or with um, other sort of with kidney disease that, that have informed this that your model?
4: Uh, so there isn't anything that we're aware of that's being used, the no. exact same model at the moment, you'd be no. surprised to yeah. know, but uh, cool. a lot of other models of care are being trialled, particularly nurse-led care, so nurses going out into the community managing chronic diseases, uh, telehealth uh, obviously is a big one as well, um, and other chronic disease management plans between GPs and specialists, but not an online model like this, no. Uh,
1: and what sort of outcomes are you looking at? Like, how do you know it's it's worked?
4: Yeah, so we're looking at clinical outcomes. So yep. at the moment in the community, people treated for hepatitis C, a lot of them aren't coming back for their final test to check for cure. Uh, mm. Most will be cured. So we're looking to see if follow-up improves and also satisfaction and usage and acceptance as well, because we don't know if this will work or what elements will work.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Um, Just before... um, I don't want to let you go without asking the question. With the new treatments for hepatitis C, so I'm going to go back a step, uh, what are the side
4: effects? So, look, it's interesting. When you look at the landmark trials between placebo groups, so people who got sugar pills and people who got the actual medication, the side effects are pretty much the same. And often the placebo group had more side effects. But (laughs) that said, we've all seen patients who do get side effects. And nausea, headache and fatigue are the three most common. And less than one in 20 people get those. And... We've seen very few patients. I think one in about 2,000 stop these medications due to side effects. Is,
1: is it expensive?
4: It is for the government, but not for the patient. Whoa, so, fantastic. That's um, that's good news for patients. So, this is the yeah. other fascinating thing. This is the first time the country's actually negotiated what we call volume-based pricing. So uh, these we're one of the only countries that have unrestricted access to these medications. So the government said, I'll give you a billion dollars. Treat as many patients as you can if you treat, you know, a million people, not that we have that many yeah. with hep C, it will cost only that billion dollars. Because if you paid for these medications, it'd be about 75000 for a course. Right. Uh, but we're getting it much cheaper than that because of this.
1: And just very quickly, um, before we head to our next segment, if somebody suspects they might have hep C, um, what should they do?
4: So get to their GP. Yep. Um, and it's a very simple blood test to find out. And, right. um, and you can be cured. And, you know, cure early means no long-term side effects if you don't have the liver. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rr.org.au to find out how.
3: So, I am this is so exciting and we're so grateful for Bella who's come in today who has had a liver transplant. And she's going to share a few stories, share a bit of her experience. And Bella, do you want to tell us why you needed a transplant? Um, I was
5: diagnosed when I was 16 with autoimmune hepatitis. And um, yeah, just over the course of the next few years, just got significantly more sick. And yeah, liver transplant was sort of my only option.
3: Well, and how long ago was that? Uh, almost nine months okay oh not not that long ago no. how how are you going really
5: really good everything's um everything's amazing um I've never been healthier quite literally um yes, yeah, everything I could have imagined so.
3: so when when you say you've never been healthier, what were you feeling before the transplant?
5: um I was extremely lethargic um and nauseous all the time. I barely made it to school um just couldn't really cope with day-to-day activities um yeah just couldn't Not do much. a whole lot mm, mm.
3: and and where what, how do you feel now what what what's changed
5: um everything i <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow. <laughs>
5: everything. Everything. wow um yeah no i'm like i don't need to take naps um i can make it through a whole day uh, back working back playing sport back at uni um, yeah, just doing everything a normal teenager slash adult is doing. So, yeah. What was it
1: like meeting Bob for the first time? Tell us about that encounter.
5: Um, the first time I met Bob was when I first went on the transplant list back when I was 17. I'm not going to lie, he did scare me a fair bit. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> was it the deep voice?
3: <laughs>
5: it was a bit intimidating because um, the difference between the children's and the Austin is that the children's tend to sugarcoat things a little Mm. bit more so I knew I was sick I just didn't really know the extent of how sick I was Mm. and uh Bob really opened that door (laughs) (laughs) for me um so yeah but then I met him again um when I came to the Austin and he was a lot more relaxed and it was I think I was also older and a little bit yeah. more used to what was going on, but yeah.
1: Was it a lot to process? I mean, when you have that first meeting, did I mean did it take you a while to process?
5: Uh, meeting him for the first time after yeah. like sort of being told the risks and stuff, yeah. it was I was terrified. Yeah. Um, but it, I think part of that was because I was so young and I could didn't really understand the enormity of everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yes, going on the transplant list the second time was still just as scary, but I was sort of made more aware of what was going to go on and everything. It was a bit more enjoyable, if
3: enjoyable is the word you can use. (laughs) Bob, would you like to comment on the disease that Bella had that um, led her to a transplant?
0: Well, it's interesting thing is that the diseases of the liver all end up with the same outcome. Once it gets damaged and you don't have enough liver to actually do all the things. And as James mentioned, it is the most important organ in the body. It does about 100 (laughs) things. And when it conks out, everything else starts to conk out. And the end result of all those diseases is pretty much the same thing, and I think Bella started to describe some of them. Interestingly, many of the patients, it happens so slowly that they've kind of forgotten what it's like Mm. to be vaguely normal. Mm. And sometimes we look at the patients and just realise how desperately sick. Mm. Just coming through the door, you just think that patient's desperately sick. The patient themselves, Bella, probably doesn't even realise it because it's happened so slowly. So it's sometimes very easy to look at somebody and say, we know that their quality of life must be pretty pretty awful. We know that their memory won't be good, mm. their stamina, mm. their muscles start to shrink up. We know it affects your kidneys, affects your gut, affects your brain. In fact, there's just no organ in the body that isn't affected mm. when the liver starts to conquer. Mm.
1: So you had the transplant. How long were you in hospital for after the operation?
5: Um, I was in hospital, I think, for about... Three weeks. Oh, okay. Um, I had to go in a couple of days after my transplant for another surgery, just to because um, I had some bleeding in the in the abdomen, mm-hmm. so I had to have an emergency something. Um, I'm not sure, what, not sure what it was, <laughs> um, where they took out a few liters of blood, um, mm-hmm. which kind of slowed my initial mm-hmm. recovery, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, I think about two and a half, three weeks.
1: And what are you doing now in terms of rehab and uh, getting fit and recovering from the surgery and getting used to a new liver?
5: Um, So I still attend the physio um, twice a week uh, that the Austin offers, not necessarily because I have to, but because I enjoy um, going to the gym and being around people who've also been in the same situation as me and you know, we've all been through similar stories together. So yeah. it's nice being able to relate to someone. Um, but yeah, I'm back playing sport and just trying to stay generally fit.
0: Bella, can I ask you something I haven't asked you before, but just the psychology of being a recipient of a transplant organ and having a new liver that belonged to someone else. Is is that something you struggle with or think about or is it something you just
5: blank yeah. out? Yeah, <laughs> yes and no. Um, I I do struggle with the idea of you know, like taking someone else's organ. not that I'm not grateful for it. I'm super, super grateful for it. but it's more just like a um, like not necessarily a why me, but like why not someone else? Like I know that I was super sick, but there are other people who are just as sick, if not more sick, and it was more sort of like, initially going through the transplant phase was you know like there are so many people that are sick and not enough organs like why am I Why do I deserve it more than anyone else? Mm. That's sort of what I've struggled with Mm. most.
1: And I imagine that's not a fairly uncommon response for for people that receive transplant organs. I'm very conscious of the time, um, EpiPen, and I (laughs) know you're doing your sign language uh, to me very quickly.
3: Very quickly. Bella, you are so brave for coming in and talking today. Uh, We're so grateful. Do you want to just give a quick plug for organ donation? Sure. Sure. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Um, I think with coming up to Christmas, it's really important to talk to your families about your wishes and their wishes. And, um, yeah, it's just to have people know what you want and where, like, if you want to go through with organ donation, it would save so many lives. Um, And, yeah, it's just... It saved yours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And to, just to have yeah. the
1: discussion at least, at yes. least bring up the discussion rather yeah. than you know wait for some, to not even have the discussion. So yeah, good on you, Bella. Thank you yeah. so much yeah. for coming. We know it's a little bit nerve-wracking coming in amongst all these people and all our listeners. So thank you so much.
0: Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and wellbeing. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.